listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Paula, Mike, Dan, and myself have successfully kicked off a brand new year of great content. Last Wednesday, Mike and Dan brought you their interview with Liz and Katie from Murder Road Podcast. They cover the unsolved murder at Berlin Lake in Northeast Ohio. Definitely check it out. Now, last week, Paula and I brought you the great Raymond. What a fantastic story. You know, Paula always surprises me with this. I had no idea that a world-famous magician was from Akron, Ohio. Now, you can find that by going just, just a couple of episodes back. Now, I was scrolling through some messages to Ohio Mysteries, and I noticed one from Anthem Bassman, who said, Love the mysteries on your podcast from long ago to the current. You even did a 10-minute mystery on one of my ancestors, Warlock Grove out of New Philadelphia. No one in my family knows how that rumor even got started unless it was because someone thought the grave looked spooky. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Anthem. We appreciate your feedback and love that show. That was released back in the March of 2020. If any of you want to know where it is, I will link it in the show notes. If you would like to reach out to us about your favorite show that we have done, or you have any ideas of any new stuff you want us to cover, reach out to feedback at ohiomysteries.com. We would love to hear from you. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years with the Akron Beacon Journal, telling stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. In 2015, the Columbus Police Department closed a homicide case that had never and could never go to trial. And they did it with an apology to a family who had been waiting 40 years for officials to acknowledge they had botched an investigation so badly they falsely imprisoned a disabled man and let a killer walk free. It takes a lot for a police department to admit their errors, so kudos to a new generation of Columbus detectives for stepping up to set the record straight. Tonight's story is about that case, the murder of 14-year-old Christy Mullins and how her assailant managed to spend the rest of his life hiding in plain sight. We're going to August the 23rd, 1975 with this one. The Mullins family, Norman and Phyllis, and their five children lived on Roslyn Avenue in the Clintonville neighborhood of North Central Columbus. Among their children was Christy, 14 years old, just days from her 15th birthday and a couple of weeks from beginning her sophomore year at Whetstone High School. She started the day at home with her younger sister, Kim, and her dad, Norman, who was, for the moment, out of work because of a back injury. The summer holiday was waning, so when a friend, Lisa, called Christy and asked to hang out, Christy was eager for something to do. 
But younger Kim reminded her big sister that she promised they could go swimming at a neighborhood pool. It was a typical hot August day, and the pool was just a few blocks from their home on Broad Meadows Boulevard. Christy agreed to keep her promise. So the girls went to the pool, where Kim immediately jumped in. But Christy may have already set other plans in motion. She remained outside the pool, and soon Kim saw that the friend on the other end of that phone call at home had arrived. Christy and Lisa chatted for a bit, and then Christy, without a word to Kim, picked up her things, and the two strolled off. Later, Lisa would tell police she had received a call from a man who said a cheerleading contest was going to be held behind the Graceland Shopping Center at 1.45 p.m. with a prize for the winner. The girls were going there. The parking lot right behind the Woolco department store was a remote patch of asphalt bordered by woods. And Lisa and Christy found themselves to be the only two there. Lisa offered to go into Woolco and see if she could learn anything, while Christy settled onto a guardrail in the parking lot. But when Lisa returned a few minutes later, Christy was gone. Lisa waited a few minutes and then started to head home. She waited occasionally and looked about to see if Christy might come running after her. But when she didn't, Lisa left. Less than an hour later, Columbus police are called by a man who said he and his family discovered a body in the woods behind Wolko, a young girl partially naked, tied up, and beaten to death. The father of this family unit is 25-year-old Henry Newell Jr., who said he went to the mall with his wife Pam and 10-year-old stepson Bobby to buy a toy. It's not exactly clear why the family left the store and ventured into the woods, but Henry said he was relieving himself when he spotted a man swinging a large wooden plank. Then he saw what the man was swinging at. It was a girl with a bloodied face. The assailant spotted the family and took off running, dropping the board. Pam Newell ran to the girl and checked for a pulse, but found none. So Henry took off his shirt, covered the girl's face, and the trio returned to the store to call police. Investigators found Christie's wrists bound with a telephone cord. Her bikini top was pulled down and her jeans unzipped. The coroner will determine she died of a fractured skull, but that she was not raped, though apparently it was attempted because much later, police will reveal they found semen on Christie's clothes. Henry Newell tells police the killer was white, tall, very tall, about six foot eight, and very thin. He was shirtless, 
wore cut-off shorts, and sported several days of beard growth on his face. A sketch was made and circulated, and 75 phone calls came in. Incredibly, the day after the murder, a patrolman spotted someone who looked like the sketch, a man near the Greyhound bus station. He arrested him and took him in for interrogation. The man's name was Jack Allen Carmen, a 27-year-old with an IQ of 50. After six hours of questioning, Jack signs a confession admitting to Christie's murder. His confession says he went to the store to wait for the bus, that he spotted Christie, pulled her into the woods, abused her, then killed her. Henry and Pam Newell are brought in to identify him, and they point him out as the man that they had seen beating Christie to death. As far as the police are concerned, this case is closed. There is no trial. Jack agrees to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence over the possibility of the death penalty. He would later tell his lawyer he wanted it to be over quickly in the hopes that his friends and God wouldn't be mad at him. An editorial in the Columbus Dispatch lauded police and the Newell family for putting this case to bed so quickly, commenting on how remarkable it was that the Newells had the presence of mind during a clearly traumatic event to remember enough detail about the killer that police identified him from a sketch within 24 hours. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. The thing is, plot spoiler here, Jack is innocent. People who knew him said he had no history of anything approaching violence. To the contrary, he was a good boy a gentle soul. Jack was born in 1950 to Alice and Irwin Carmen from LaGrange. That's a village in Lorraine County. Irwin, his dad, was a truck driver. At the age of 16, Jack was taken to the Apple Creek State Institute in Worcester, where it was noted he didn't even know how to use silverware. 
Then he was sent to live with foster parents, a retired barber and his wife in Columbus. Jack scored so low on an educational test that Columbus schools refused to enroll him. When he came of age, he was moved into a group home and found work as a janitor. Someone who worked alongside him for three years told a reporter he was always a guy that appeared to need a friend, a little bit lost. Jack may have been settling into prison life, but this story was far from over. People started circulating petitions demanding the case be revisited. Even Christie's parents had their doubts that the pitiable young man could have done what he was accused of doing. Among questions police never answered, Jack couldn't have been at the scene at the time of the murder. He lived in a group home on West Broad Street, operated by Volunteers of America, and people there said he was home. The American Civil Liberties Union took up Jack's case and won Jack the right to withdraw his confession and have a trial. So in December of 1977, a trial began and prosecutors were going to have to explain their evidence. The thing is, they had none. The trial was one eye-opening revelation after another. The defense played the audio tape of Jack's confession, and many who heard it agreed it sure sounded like he was being guided in his answers. At one point, Jack said he raped Christie, but Christie was not raped, so his interrogators had to lead him to a different description of events. That's not all. Henry Newell, the man who supposedly caught Jack in the act of beating Christie, had his own mother-in-law make a cryptic statement about Newell indicating he had inside information about the killing. The defense also found a drinking companion of Newell's who said Newell confessed that he was the one who killed Christie. Police also had to admit that the versions given by Newell, his wife Pam, and his now 12-year-old stepson Bobby of what happened in those woods that day never matched, and that they never got to question Pam because Newell kept coming up with excuses why she wasn't available. They simply gave up and stopped trying to question her. The trial ended with Carmen's attorneys flat out accusing Henry Newell of being the killer. The trial lasted for six days, and after just two hours of deliberation, the jury found Jack Carmen to be innocent. Officials were not happy. Franklin County Prosecutor George Smith and Columbus Police Colonel Ralph Drown said, despite the verdict, they knew Carmen was their man and there was no sense in reopening the case. Well, that attitude did not sit well with the public, many of whom thought a killer was still on the loose. So, a little later in the month, officials made a formal announcement that they would keep on looking. 
But it doesn't appear they ever took seriously the alternate suspect, Henry Newell. Henry certainly seemed to be worth a look. He had a history of violence and drug use and had even served time for arson for burning his house to collect the insurance. In April of 1978, police even made a statement to the press that Henry Newell was definitively not the man who beat Christy Mullins to death. There were still so many open questions in this case, like that invitation to a cheerleading contest. What was that about? Christie's friends said she hated cheerleading and made fun of the activity all the time. They doubted she would have had any interest in competing in something that she had no experience with and actually abhorred. One possible scenario was that Christie went to the store for an entirely different reason. Christie had smoked some marijuana a few weeks earlier. Now, before you get judgy, let me point out that this is the 1970s, and it was actually a pretty common activity among teenagers. Turns out, the woods where Christie was killed was actually a gathering spot for smoking teens. And on top of that, Henry Newell was known to supply weed to the local kids. So, was that why Christie was there? Anyway, Henry Newell was never really pursued for the crime, and Christie's murder remained unsolved for the next 40 years. Her dad never stopped looking, though. Norman Mullins collected a treasure trove of clippings and documents, hoping he would figure it out himself. He was still looking when he died of cancer in 2006. This stone-cold case started warming up several years after that in 2014 when a local author named John Oler wrote an e-book about the slaying. The Mullins family had given Oler the file that Christie's father had put together and explained their suspicions of Henry Newell. When Oler's book came out, it sparked a fire. The community started talking again. People started pressuring police to look at the ancient case. And a new generation agreed to dust off the old file. It was assigned to cold case investigator Steve Eppert. Eppert took a year to be thorough, but Pretty quickly, he could see the evidence never piled up against Jack Carmen, but rather the man who had fingered Jack in the first place, Henry Newell. By then, there was no hope of asking Newell about it. He was dead. 
He died of lung cancer in 2013. His wife, Pam, was also gone. The couple divorced in the 1980s, and Pam killed herself a year after the split. But Eppert said the evidence told the story for him. It helped that Newell's own family, no longer fearful of repercussions, were finally ready to talk. Two of them told police Newell had confessed what he had done, and a polygraph suggested both those witnesses were telling the truth. One of the witnesses was Henry Newell's niece, Pam Brown, not to be confused with Henry's late wife, who was also named Pam. Pam Brown was 16 at the time of Christie's murder. She said her Uncle Henry, known to friends and family as Junior, was good to her, once even bought her a car, and that she loved him. But she also knew him to be a mean person. Newell told Pam that he spotted Christie sitting on a guardrail behind the shopping center that day, that they had a brief conversation before entering the woods, and that Newell made an advance on her. When Christie rejected him, things escalated. At that point, he said he tied her up and she wouldn't stop screaming. So he picked up a two-by-four and started bashing her in the head with it. After Christie was dead, Newell said he ran back to the house where he lived on West Kanawa Street, though I'm almost certain I'm pronouncing that street name wrong. And he told his wife that if anyone asked... She should say they were together all day. Then he took his wife, Pam, and his stepson down to the store, where he led them on that walk through the woods to discover Christie's body. In a very diabolical move, Newell gave police the description of a man who perfectly fits someone he already knew, Jack Carmen. Knowing that Jack was mentally deficient and would be an easy target. Pam, the niece, said everyone in the family knew about the murder. It was an open secret, but everyone was afraid of Newell, and they remained silent about it out of fear for their personal safety. It was Newell's death that finally freed them to speak. The other witness who came forward was Bobby, that 10-year-old stepson, now fully grown. He told police he never saw a man beating Christy and hadn't even seen the body. He said when they got to the woods, Henry went in by himself the first time, then came back to get Pam and describe what he had seen, and they had not. Sergeant Eric Pilia of the Columbus Homicide Cold Case Unit said the initial investigation into Christie's death was mishandled badly, even by the standards of that day. He said Columbus police truly believe the case is now closed and that Newell was the killer all along. They made this announcement during a press conference in 2015. Pilia said, The Columbus Division of Police wishes to formally and publicly offer an apology to the family and close friends of Christy Mullins 
for the lack of action taken in pursuit of Henry Newell as a suspect by investigators 40 years ago and for any hardships that may have resulted from those actions. Christie's family was understandably torn between frustration for how it had been handled for so many years and gratitude that police were willing to acknowledge the missteps. Christie's sister, Melanie Miller, shared some of their experience with reporters. We were just that normal family, she said. Five kids growing up and, you know, this didn't happen in your neighborhood. In a very poignant move, Christie's sister, Kim, who was present at the press conference, recorded the announcement. When it was over, she took the recording to their father's grave and played the apology for him. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. And we will see you back here for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.